0: All right, let's talk about Gulliver's Travels, Part 1, A Voyage to Lilliput. The satire that Jonathan Swift is doing here is quite different in the strategy from the kind of satire that Alexander Pope did. Alexander Pope was all about a real incident, but it was framed as a fictional account, and that allowed him to kind of get away with saying things he couldn't have if he had presented it straight. Uh, Jonathan Swift does almost exactly the opposite. He's presenting this completely fantastical story as if it were something that was really true. Uh, so the first few paragraphs of gulliver's travels uh, were uh, the it's all told in first person narrative account uh, gulliver is telling us the story and this is very much like the kinds of stories of of uh, travelers that you would have read in the 18th century on the you know this was the age of the great voyages of discovery uh, for europeans Uh, And so it seems that way until we get a a sudden turn when he is crash landed on this island and falls asleep and he wakes up and he's been tied down by a race of little six inch tall human beings. Uh, Obviously, we're in the realm of fantasy, but it's been such a a well crafted uh, reality to it that it gives it uh, more depth. And it's very you know he it's very specific you know he talks about the 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 date that they were they were near van Diemen's land. Uh, in, chap- in, part- in chapter one uh, on the 5th of November, uh, the la- latitude of 30 degrees, two minutes south. I mean, he's very specific about all that. And throughout this, he tells us the specific dimensions of everything. And th- again, that helps kind of, uh, that's very different than the kind of fantasy you get in the, the Fairy Queen, for example, which is not making any attempt to pretend that it's really happening. Um, So he finds himself tied down by these little Lilliputians, and they're also, another part of the reality is that they're speaking their own language, uh, which of course, you know, they would if you were in a different country, they would have their own language, so he can't understand them. Uh, and and then he goes into great detail talking about how they, you know, he uh, they, they shot arrows at him, and uh, they got him the food, and were so amazed by how much of it he was able to eat. Um, and they they drugged his wine so they could get him on a, a, a machine to take him into the the capital city. Um, and it turns out that he is living in uh, an ancient temple. Uh, esteemed to be the largest in the whole kingdom, which, having been polluted some years before by an unnatural murder, was, accorded according uh, to the zeal of those people, looked on as profane, and therefore had been applied to common use, and all the ornaments and furniture carried away. In this edifice it was determined I should lodge. Now, a couple of things going on here. Again, uh, Swift is, is meticulously... Realistic in his treatment of this, uh, you know you need a big building, well, what would a big building be? It would be like a cathedral uh, well, if it's a cathedral why aren 't they using it as a church well it's been profaned in some way, so he's really again like like contemporary science fiction writers he's really thought out all of the the details of this, which is part of the what makes it uh, you know so entertaining I think. Um, but also, uh, they, they you'll notice that there's a footnote that uh, the Norton edition has where they say that this uh, uh, this murder, this unnatural murder, uh, presumably a reference to the execution of Charles I, who was sentenced in Westminster Hall. Well, it, it, that's possible. That's, that. I'm not going to talk a lot about the uh, possible topical references in Gulliver's Travels. Uh, I think you can. I think a lot of people have. But unless you're very familiar with the history and the politics and the society of uh, Swift's day, uh, it, it, they don't really do much for you. I think it's certainly true that the original audience would have picked up those things, but they would have picked them up as very natural cultural references, the same way that you know if, if you're watching South Park or The Simpsons today, you don't need a footnote to tell you that it's a, a, a reference to something going on in popular culture. Uh, but if, if you, you know, trying to explain them to your grandmother, uh, it, it kind of takes all the fun out of it. Um, and in the same way, we're we're in the position. Contemporary readers are in the position of grandmother. We don't really have that cultural background, and so it's hard to kind of get into the the swing of it. But that doesn't really matter, I think, because a lot of the satire is more universal than topical. That is. Swift is not just, he is making fun of specific things in his contemporary society, but he has a, a kind of a larger view than that. He's also making fun of society in general, and we'll we'll see how uh, some of that works as we go on. So the first chapter, we get, uh, uh, you know, Gulliver is kidnapped by these Lilliputians and tied up and taken to the, the, the temple. Now, I want to notice something that happens uh, in Chapter 2, uh, second paragraph of Chapter 2. I had been for some hours extremely pressed by the necessities of nature, which was no wonder it being almost two days since I had last disburdened myself, I was under great difficulties between urgency and shame. The best expedient I could think on was to creep into my house, which I accordingly did, and... Shutting the gate after me, I went as far as the length of my chain would suffer, and discharged my body of that uneasy load. But this was the only time I was ever guilty of so uncleanly an action, for which I cannot but hope that the candid reader will give some allowance, after he hath maturely and impartially considered my case, and the distress I was in. From this time, my constant practice was, as soon as I rose to perform that business in open air at the full extent of my chain, and uh, due care was taken every morning before company came, that the offensive matter should be carried off in wheelbarrows by two servants appointed for that purpose. All right, so he's going on—again, this is part of the realistic detail— but uh swift has a lot of the these particular kind of bodily function realistic details in gulliver's travels uh, he does again this kind of gra- first of all it grounds it in reality uh he you know gulliver actually has to uh have a bowel movement and you know he has to have some place to do that and uh he has to have servants who come and take away his bowel movements before any company comes um but part of the reason this is here and it's throughout not just Gulliver's travels, but really almost all of Swift's work is this focus on the uh, the kind of of uh, unflattering physicality of mankind uh, so he talks a lot about crap and uh, piss and the fact that we are essentially physical animals um, that is is you know all for all of the kind of the high flown uh, ideas of rationality and what was called the age of reason. Swift was always reminding us, okay, we we may have figured out gravity, but we still have to uh, take have a bowel movement every day, uh, and we'll see that comes up throughout uh, *Gulliver's Travels*. So the uh, the emperor comes and. He talks uh, about him. He's very, uh, very impressive. Says the emperor, he's taller by almost the breadth of my nail than any in his court, which alone is enough to strike an awe into the beholder. Now, this is something that happens quite frequently in part one of Gulliver's travels. Uh, They're uh, talking about he's so tall and this, you know, very imposing figure. But of course, from Gulliver's point of view, how tall is he? Well, about the breadth of my fingernail. Really, that that strikes awe into everybody. Uh, part of what and part of the reason that Swift is having this kind of fantasy land is to give us a new perspective on things. And he is continually talking about size in that way, about how impressive this tall king was. He was the breadth of a fingernail taller than anybody else, um, or you know, a little bit further down in that paragraph the king, he held his sword drawn in his hand to defend himself, if I should happen to break loose. It was almost three inches long. So here's this king. He, he's going to defend himself against Gulliver, who's like 60 feet tall, um, and he's got a three-inch sword. And uh, another strategy that he has in that regard is uh, exemplified by the little inventory they take of, of Gulliver's uh, possessions. So this is at the, the near the end of uh, uh, chapter two. Uh, they have uh, in the right coat pocket of the great mountain man, for so I interpret the word Quimbisflustron. After the strictest search, we found only one great piece of coarse cloth, large enough to be a footcloth for your Majesty's chief room of state. All right, so. There's this thing, it would be big enough to be a rug in the, in the biggest room in the palace. Well, that's his handkerchief. In the left pocket, we saw a huge silver chest with a cover of the same metal, which we, the searchers, were not able to lift. We desired it should be opened, and one of us, stepping into it, found himself up to the mid-leg in a sort of dust, some part whereof, flying up in our, to our faces, set us both a-sneezing for several times together. Now, that's a snuff box. That's powdered tobacco. Uh, this, you would kind of snort little, uh, little pinches of powdered tobacco in this time. Um, or the next one, uh, next item. In his right waistcoat pocket, we found a prodigious bundle of white, thin substances, folded one over another, about the b- bigness of three men, tied with a strong cable, and marked with black figures, which we humbly conceived to be writings, every letter almost half as large as the palm of our hands. Now, that's his, his uh, diary, a little pocket diary. In the left, there was a sort of engine. From the back of which were extended twenty long poles resembling the palisados before your majesty 's court, with we conjecture the man mountain combs his head for we did not always trouble him with questions uh, so it 's talking about all of these things that's that 's what a comb looks like to them, or look uh, a little further on they they get to uh, uh talking about the uh, this object that 's the end of this chain. Out of the right fob hung a great silver chain, with a wonderful kind of engine at the bottom. We directed him to draw out whatever was at the end of the chain, which appeared to be a globe, half silver and half of some transparent metal. For on the transparent side we saw certain strange figures, circularly drawn, and thought we could touch them, until we found our fingers stopped with that lucid substance." He put the engine to our ears, which made an incessant noise like that of a watermill. And we conjecture that it is either some unknown animal, or the god that he worships. But we are more inclined to the latter opinion, because he assured us, if we understood him right, for he expressed himself very imperfectly, that he seldom did anything without consulting it. All right, now this is his pocket watch um and you know they describe it in a in a way that it makes you see it in in a new way this is um the, uh an idea that was uh, put forward by uh the russian formalists in the early 20th century was that the primary uh purpose of literature was to defamiliarize the the world around us to make us take things that are familiar and see them in a new and fresh and unfamiliar way And this is exactly what this is doing. It's, you know, we we wouldn't think of a pocket watch as something like this. But we also get uh, Swift's very uh, sly satire here that it's the God that he worships because he never does anything without consulting it. Uh, I mean, today you would make the same joke about somebody's smartphone, right? It's We think it's probably the God that they worship because they're constantly praying to it and consulting it over everything. Um, that's, that's a consistent strategy, is that this change in size allows him to make us see things uh, that we wouldn't normally notice about our own world. Now, in uh, Chapter 3, we begin to get Gulliver's understanding of the society that he's living in, and here's a different kind of making strange or satire that Swift indulges in. And this is the custom of the rope dancers. Uh, the, the rope dancers, you know, the, were candidates for great employment and high favorite court. Um, so they uh, performed upon a slender white thread extended about two f- foot and twelve inches from the ground. So two foot—that's about. Remember, it's an, an an inch is a foot in, in this. So that would be for them from the Lilliputian scale. Twelve inches would be twelve feet high, and. Uh, you know, and uh, twenty-four feet long on a tightrope, and so they get on the rope, and whoever can jump the highest without falling uh, gets the promotion. Um, you know, whoever jumps the highest without falling succeeds in the office. Uh, very often, the chief ministers themselves are commanded to show their skill and to convince the emperor that they have not lost their faculty. Uh, 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 Flimnap the treasurer, is allowed to cut a caper on the straight rope at least an inch higher than any other lord in the whole empire. Again, the sense of scale. Wow, he can jump an inch higher than anybody else. Uh, How impressive. Um, But he's also, uh, uh, this is making fun of the whole idea of, of politics. How do people get ahead in politics? Well, they're Entertainers, they're rope dancers, they jump, and you know, it, it's a high wire. Politics is a high wire act. You know, you're on a tightrope and you're, you're jumping and seeing if you survive, and almost everybody takes a fall now and then. Um, so it, it, it's kind of giving an, uh, a metaphor for our own politics. And then the other thing that they do is, you know, they jump, uh, uh, you know, above or below a a stick. Uh, Again, this kind of dancing acrobatics that people go through in in political life. Um, It says, you know, the candidates advancing one by one sometimes leap over the stick, sometimes creep under it backwards and forwards several times according as the stick is advanced or depressed. Um, this, this uh, skill in leaping and creeping uh, is what they do. So, here again, that's not anything that's specifically about the 18th century. I think you could see that as a, uh, a diagnosis of contemporary politics, too. That's what I mean when I say that uh, Swift's satire is not just focused on his contemporary world, but on broader things about uh, uh, human society, and this is another advantage of this uh fantastical presentation of this i mean he could and in fact swift did write essays about uh, the problems in contemporary politics but by putting it in a fantasy contest context by making it this contest of uh, jumping you know jumping on a tightrope or jumping up or above a, a stick uh it gives it enough distance where we were able to accept it um, this is something that, uh, you know, uh, again, South Park or the Simpsons get away with a lot of very, uh, hot button political commentary because they're animated and they're fantastical. And we kind of accept that, uh, it's a strategy that's been used for satire for a long time. Uh, but again, uh, Swift keeps bringing it down to the kind of base physical reality. Uh, remember when uh, the, the emperor has Gulliver stand with his feet astride and the army uh, uh, marches beneath him. And they were said to you know respect him, but they could not prevent some of the younger officers from turning up their eyes as they passed under me. And to confess the truth... My breeches were at the time in so ill a condition that they afforded some opportunities for laughter and admiration. So he's got a he's got a hole in his crotch, and so when they're passing under him, they can look up and see, you know, and, and admire what they see. Uh, again, Swift is always bringing it down to kind of the the base, crude physical level, uh, however high people's aspirations might be. Now in Chapter Four, we're introduced to the uh, the, the high uh, the high heels and the low heels. These are the two political factions, and you know your footnote would tell you these are the Whigs and the Tories in contemporary life. But if you don't know about that, don't worry. You can just you can substitute Republicans and Democrats, and it works pretty much just the same. Um, it says that there was a violent faction at home and the danger of an invasion by a most potent enemy from abroad. As to the first, you are to understand that, for above seventy moons past, there had been two struggling parties in the empire, under the names of Tremescan and Slemescan, Slimes- from the high and the low heels on their shoes, which they, by which they distinguished themselves. He says, "'It is alleged, indeed, that the high heels are most agreeable to our ancient constitution, but, however this be, his majesty has determined to make one of only low heels in the administration of the government, and all offices in the gift of the crown, as you cannot but observe, and particularly that his majesty's imperial heels are lower by by at least a drur than any of his court.' A uh, drur is a measure of about fourteenth part of an inch. The animosities between these two parties ran so high that they will neither eat nor drink nor talk with each other. Uh, so, you know, so there, the, the, you know, one party is in favor and the other is not, and the high heel and low heel distinction is so trivial that uh, it's a big distinction that the king's uh, heels are fourteenth uh, of an inch. Shorter than other people's. Uh, again, these he, what he's using these little to show us that the we we have these we think of ourselves as the great you know kind rulers of the universe, and uh, the little do. But we're obsessed with these trivial distinctions that really don't matter if you see them from a different perspective. You've seen them from Gulliver's perspective, and in addition to the. High heels and the low heels. We have the big Indians and the little Indians. Uh, the that is which end of the egg they're going to break open, uh, and this is you know kind of Protestants and Catholics. Um, but again, any kind of religious debate would would work. It's more kind of on principle. Uh, they're arguing about such a trivial thing. And look at the original scriptural passage that they are. Uh, arguing about, that all true believers shall break their eggs at the convenient end. And which is the convenient end seems, in my humble opinion, to be left to every man's conscience, or at least in the power of the chief magistrate to determine. Uh, So that's uh, his solution to it. Uh, Notice the contrast there. Either every man can follow their own conscience, or they have to do whatever their leader tells them to. Uh, well, that, those are kind of in conflict themselves. Uh, but the point is that it's this religious argument, and there were these things that were going on. The, you know, the doctrine of transubstantiation, whether when you took the uh, the mass at church, whether the bread and wine literally became the body and blood of Jesus Christ, or whether that was just a metaphor, and people literally went to war and killed each other. Over that argument, uh, so Swift is now. If Swift had taken that head on, everyone who had an opinion on that would have had their their uh, guard up. But by putting it in a fictional context, where it's a contest about which end of the egg you should break open to eat it from, uh, you you're allow, again it defamiliarizes. It allows you to see things with a fresh perspective. Now, in Chapter Five, the lilliputians we, we uh, use Gulliver as an uh, an instrument of war against Blefuscu, and again uh, you know Lilliput and Blefuscu were thought of as for swift as England and France, but it could have been you know in the Cold War it could have been the United States and Russia and, you know in in other times it would have been something else um, it, it's the whole idea of having the the enemy. And again, from Gulliver's perspective, uh, Lilliput and Blefuscu are indistinguishable. I mean, you can't tell any difference between them, but they think that they're bitter enemies and completely opposed. Uh, and we get this wonderful, uh, again, Swift has a very detailed imagination about how Gulliver manages to uh, steal the fleet of Blefuscu, and uh, uh, even and wears his glasses so that they can't uh, hurt his eyes. Um And he receives the title of Nardak, which is the highest honor that you can receive. Uh, And it says that uh, his majesty desired, I would take some other opportunity of bringing all the rest of the enemy's ships into his ports. And so unmeasurable is the ambition of princes that he seemed to think of nothing less than reducing the whole empire of Blufuscu into a province and governing it by a viceroy, of destroying the big Indian exiles and compelling that people to break the smaller end of their eggs, by which he would remain sole monarch of the whole world. That's his ambition. He's going to make everybody break their eggs on the small end. Uh, but Gulliver's not going to do that. You know, he's he's helped them out, but he's not going to crush the the enemies the way that he could have. Uh, and this you know begins some of his political troubles. Um, as he says, he, he asked for a, a license to go see the uh, Blefuscudian monarch and it was given permission, but very grudgingly. And he begins to get uh, entangled in the political intrigues of Lilliput. Um, and a, a turning point in this is the the great fire in the imperial majesty's apartment. And if you remember how he how Gulliver helps extinguish this fire. First he goes and, you know, he runs there and helps them, you know, the the firemen, but they're just carrying, you know, buckets of water. um, And the buckets are about as big as a thimble and it would take him forever to put out the fire that way. And he left his coat back at home so he 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 can't smother the fire. Uh, But he says, uh, by the luckiest chance in the world... I had not discharged myself of any part of it, that is, of all the wine he had uh, drunk that night. The heat I had contracted was coming very near the flames, and by laboring to quench them, made the wine begin to operate by urine, which I voided in such a quantity, and applied it so well to the proper places, that in three minutes the fire was extinguished, and the rest of that noble pile, which has cost so many ages in erecting, preserved from destruction.' So again, Swift gets down to very basic bodily functions. How does Gulliver uh, put the fire out? He pees on it. Um, and uh, the the queen is just aghast at this, that, you know, you peed on my chambers and she's never going to live there anymore. Um, and again, the footnote tells you that, well, this may be an allusion to the, the, the way the queen took uh, some of uh, Swift's earlier writing to, uh, in a, in a bad way. and It may be, but uh, just in terms of the fictional world, it's understandable that you wouldn't want to live in the house that had been peed on. Um, but again, how else was he going to put the fire out? Now in chapter 6, it's kind of a break from the, the narrative here, and it gives us some of the background of what Lilliput and the Lilliputians are like. And one thing he says in the very first paragraph of chapter 6, uh, he says that uh, nature has adopted the eyes of the Lilliputians to all objects proper for their view. They see with great exactness, but at no great distance. I think that's a real key to the, the whole book. Remember earlier when the king looked at, um, the the emperor looked at uh, Gulliver's pocket watch, he could see the movements of the minute hand, even though we can't, perceive that, uh, because they they see small things. Um, he says, and to show the sharpness of their sight towards objects that are near, I've been much pleased with observing a cook pulling a lark, which was not so large as a common fly, and a young girl threading an invisible needle with invisible silk. So, you know, again, to, to, to Gulliver it looks invisible, to the little girl it's very clear. And this idea of seeing with great exactness but at no great distance that really sums up the Lilliputians and as, so far as the Lilliputians are a satirical reference to humanity it, it's Swift's view of humanity uh, we see, we're myopic we see the small little details in front of us but we don't see the great big picture we worry what end uh, of the egg we're going to break open to eat but we don't see the, the big picture absurdity of that Uh, So, again, that they see with great exactness, but at no great distance. And then he goes on and talks about some of their laws and customs um, and and things like uh, if the person, person is accused and makes their innocence plainly appear upon the trial, the accuser is immediately put to an ignominious death. So if you falsely accuse somebody and get caught, you get you get punished. Um, they look on fraud as a greater crime than theft. Um, and he uh, says, and so these people thought it was a prodigious defect of policy among us when I told them that our laws were enforced by only by penalties without any mention of reward. Now, here in this section, I think Swift is kind of switching tactics. He's talking about uh, some of his, you know, political ideas here, or ideals, uh, what would a better society look like? Though he points out that uh, all of this, he says, I uh, would only be understood to mean the original institutions and not the most scandalous corruptions into which these people are fallen by the gen- degenerate nature of man. So he's saying that the the Lilliputians don't live up to these uh, 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 standards, but this was what their their values were. Um, And some of them, Swift seems to endorse. Uh, Again, the idea that uh, what a great crime fraud is, how false accusers should be punished, um, that we should have rewards as well as punishments from the law, or the idea that children are are not raised by their parents, but at public nurseries. Uh, this is an idea that actually goes back to Plato in the Republic. He says that his ideal state that the children would be raised by the state, not by their parents, and that the uh, uh, the ladies uh, are educated just among them as well as the men it says the young ladies there are as much ashamed of being cowards and fools as the men uh, so it is kind of a, a, a feminist uh, attitude here as well, but at the end of chapter six, we kind of get back into the the, the narrative. Um, and he talks about an accusation, says, The treasurer took a fancy to be jealous of his wife from the malice of some evil tongues who informed him that her grace had taken a violent affection for my person, and the court scandal ran for some time that she once came privately to my lodging. This I solemnly declare to be a most infamous falsehood without any grounds, farther than that her grace was pleased to treat with me with all innocent marks of freedom and friendship. I own she came often to my house, but always publicly, nor ever without three more in in the coach, who were usually her sister and young daughter and some particular acquaintances. But this was common to many other ladies of the court. So what he's doing here... This is, the kind, again, the kind of scandal that you get in, in court intrigues. And the treasurer thinks that his uh, his wife has been privately to Gulliver's lodgings. Well, now, in, in our world, the implication would be that there was an affair. But that can't be the implication here, can it? I mean, how absurd is that, right? I mean, they... They couldn't have a sexual relationship. Um, but he treats it as a matter of honor that, uh, you know, he would ever have a woman in his private chambers uh, without, uh, you know, a married woman, no less. Uh, so he goes to, you know, the, spends the whole paragraph talking about how absurd it is and how uh, he, he shouldn't be. Uh, no one should believe these horrible rumors about him. And Swift is kind of poking fun at the, uh, again, the kind of uh, rumors that you get in, in uh, social and political life. And then in chapter 7, we get the Articles of Impeachment against the Mountain Man. Uh, Article 1. Whereas, by a statute made in the reign of his imperial majesty, Defer Deferplune, it is enacted that whosoever shall make water within the precincts of the royal palace shall be liable to the pains and penalties of high treason notwithstanding that said Quis, Quimbus Flestrin, in open breach of said law, under color of extinguishing the fire, kindled in the apartment of his majesty's most uh, drear, dear imperial consort, did maliciously, traitorously, and devilishly, by discharging of his urine, put out said fire, kindled in said apartment.' Uh, Now this is—he's Swift is mocking the kind of legal legalistic language here of these accusations, and again, the context of them makes us see how absurd all of this is. Uh, He he peed he peed under color of extinguishing the fire. Well, they say later in that same very long sentence that he did extinguish the fire. It wasn't under color. It wasn't a pretense. That was what he was actually doing, and also. Think about that law. There's a law that you can't uh, make water within the precincts of the royal palace. Well, that's really not very practical, is it? Well, what do they do? They, everybody has to leave the palace if they have, need to pee. Um, that's uh, that's it, absurd. I mean, it, it's again, it's ignoring the physical reality of being a human being. You know, we are we are so pure that we will not make water within the palace. Uh, and so it's a silly law, and obviously there were extenuating circumstances for uh, for Gulliver. Or look at uh, Article 2, uh, where it, uh, it accuses him of, uh, uh, he was under pretense of unwillingness to force the conscience or destroy the liberties and lives of an innocent people. He didn't destroy... Lefuscu, as the king wanted him to, again, under pretense of saying that people should have their individual consciences and he shouldn't just kill them because the king wanted to. Uh, So again, these articles of impeachment are are absurd and they reveal the absurdity of real political arguments of a similar kind uh, that that are made all the time. Again, I'll let you fill in the blanks for whatever political scandal you want to think about. So now the, the court has to come up with a punishment for him. And Gulliver's friends in court uh, say, say, well, we shouldn't kill him. Uh, would uh, please to spare your life and only give order to put out both your eyes? Uh, oh, no, we don't want to kill you. We just want to blind you. And says, uh, all the world would applaud the lenity of the emperor as well as the fair and generous proceedings of those who have the honor to be his counselors. that The loss of your eyes would be no impediment to your bodily strength by which you might still be useful to his majesty. That blindness is an addition to courage by concealing dangers from us. He says, actually, this will make you braver. You won't be able to see things to be afraid of. Um, and everybody will praise how lenient this is. Um, but the uh, uh, his opponents in the in the court. The, the treasurer who thought that Gulliver was sleeping with his wife and the admiral who was jealous that Gulliver had destroyed the, uh, the enemy fleet when he couldn't uh, are saying that uh, they had reason to think you were a big Indian in your heart. And uh, as treason begins in the heart before it appears to overt acts, so he accused you as a traitor on that account and therefore insisted you should be put to death. Okay, now look at the, the logic there. Okay, He's saying, really, in your heart, you, you believe that the, the, you side with the big Indians instead of the, us good patriotic Lilliputian little Indians. And since, well, treason begins in the heart, and that's what your heart is, so eventually you haven't committed treason, but you will because your heart is impure. Again, it's a crazy kind of argument. Um, and so the, But the thing is, well, how are they going to kill him? Uh, and they say, well, they can starve him to death. Gradually, gradually lessening your establishment, by which, for want of sufficient food, you would grow weak and faint and lose your appetite and consequently decay and consume in a few months. Neither would the stench of your carcass then be so dangerous as when, as, uh, when it should be more than half diminished. And immediately, upon your death, five or six thousands of His Majesty's subjects might, in two or three days, cut your flesh to your bones, take it away by cartloads and bury it in distant parts to prevent infection, leaving the skeleton as a monument of admiration to posterity. So this is, you know, again, this is kind of like, you know, you, you read these accounts in the uh, of, uh, in World War II of the, the Nazis planning out these concentration camps and the horrible things they were going to do, and they're just focused on the logistics of it all. Well, that's what's doing here. They're, they're okay. Well, yes, we'll slowly starve him, and then we can cut him into little pieces, and and do and just ignoring the the horrible fact of what they're doing. Uh, again, this is you know this is politics, and, and Gulliver points out uh, that the the more these praises uh, uh, were enlarged and insisted upon, the praises of the, the the emperor's mercy, the more inhuman was the punishment and the sufferer more innocent. So the more you hear everybody praising the king's mercy and justice, the more horrible the punishment is and the more likely that the guy they're punishing is innocent. Uh, yet as to myself, I must confess, having never been designed for a courtier, either by my birth or education, I was so ill a judge of things that I could not discover the lenity in favor of this sentence, that is, being blinded, but conceived it Perhaps erroneously, rather to be rigorous than gentle, uh, at last, I fixed upon a resolution for which it is possible uh, it is probable I may incur some censure and not unjustly, for I confess I owned preserving my eyes and consequently my liberty to my own great rashness and want of experience because. If I had then known the nature of princes and ministers, which I have since observed in many other courts, and their method of treating criminals less obnoxious than myself, I should with great alacrity and readiness have submitted to so easy a punishment. (laughs) He's saying that, well, I was young and innocent then. I didn't know how really bad politics get. Being blinded would have been easy compared to what they do to people in other courts. Um, but he's decided he's going to go to Blufusku because uh, you know obviously he's not uh, not safe here anymore. And in chapter eight, now that he's at Blufusku, he's discovered that there's a there's a small uh, lifeboat uh, that he can use to to leave. Uh, and with the help of the uh, the Blefuscan emperor, uh, he he retrieves the boat and repairs it and gets it ready for a. Uh, uh, a journey home. But uh, before he leaves, a messenger comes from Lilliput uh, and says, uh, This envoy had instructions to represent to the monarch of Blefuscu the great lenity of his master, who was content to punish me for no further than with the loss of my eyes, that I had fled from justice, and, and if I did not return in two hours, I should be deprived of my title of Nardak and declared a traitor. Really, that's, that's the big punishment. They won't call him Nardak anymore and say he's a traitor. The envoy further added that in order to maintain the peace and amity between both empires, his master expected that his brother of Blefuscu would give orders that, to have me sent back to Lilliput, bound hand and foot, to be punished as a traitor. Well, the King of Blafuscu points out, uh, yeah, how am I going to do that? You know I can't bind him and send him back as a traitor uh, if he doesn't want to be. Um, but uh, And they're actually very glad that he's, he's leaving. He won't be a political problem for them anymore. And again, Swift is very detailed in the preparation of the boat and what he took and how he prepared all of these things. It gives it a real sense of, of reality. Uh, and even though it tells you know I set sail upon the twenty fourth day of september seventeen o one at six in the morning i mean you can't you can 't get any more kind of realistic and specific than that, uh, but one important point I would make about this is when he gets rescued, of course, nobody believes his story until he shows them the lilliputian animals that he 's brought uh, he says they uh, they thought that they there was danger I underwent had disturbed my head whereupon I took my black cattle and sheep out of my pocket, which, after great astonishment, clearly convinced him of my veracity. So again, this is not a fantasy. This is not like you know the the movie of the Wizard of Oz where it was all a dream. Uh, this really happened. Uh, and in fact, he um, is able to. One of the one of the sheep is eaten by the rats on board, but he gets keeps the rest of them, and they become a, a little tourist attraction that he charges money to. Uh, so again, Swift is setting this all up as something that is actually really happening, not a not a fantasy. And a lot of this, the uh, the Lilliputians are Swift's view of of the modern world. We think that we're this great these great nations and everything, but if you look at us from the cosmic perspective, the arguments, the political arguments and religious arguments we have look very small and trivial. And that was the thing that he was pointing out. Now, we're not going to read the the next uh, uh, part of Gulliver's Travels. That's the voyage to Bromdingnag, which is the opposite. It's where uh, Gulliver goes to a land of giants, where he is the size of a Lilliputian. And this was Swift's view of uh, the uh, kind of the ancient world, the, the giants of classical antiquity. Uh, that that uh, were much greater than we are, and we look tiny in their presence. Uh, and it's some, many of the same kinds of satire he does in in reverse in the in the country of Bromdingnag. Uh, and then in book uh, three, he goes. Gulliver goes to several lands. Uh, most of them are. are uh, kind of parodies of contemporary science and the idea that, uh, you know, you can use rationality to cure all of your problems. Uh, again, you could think about contemporary uh, um, analogs to that as well. But we're skipping those two books, and I want you to look at part four, which is The Voyage to the Country of the Hwynhams. Uh, yeah, it's pronounced Wynhams. Uh And there are two races that Gulliver encounters in this country— One are the Whenoms and the other are the the Yahoo. And look at the way that they're described, what what he sees them and how he discovers very important things about each of these races uh, fairly early in the book. And notice the way that uh, Gulliver is describing his own society to these people and how Swift is able to get his kind of satirical comments on our own society in that way. Also, unlike the other voyages, there's a fairly extended uh, part about Gulliver uh, returning to the, the normal world in book in part four. So think about that and how his experience in the country of the Wynnums has affected him, how he has changed, how his view of humanity has changed, and think about what, what point Uh, Swift is making here. I think the satire in book four is much more complicated and ambiguous than it is in part one. Uh, But we'll talk about that and think about what is it exactly that Swift is satirizing here? Who is he satirizing? Um, And so we'll talk about that and uh, many other things next time when we discuss part four of Gulliver's Travels. If you have questions uh, about anything, let me know at drmarkwomack at gmail.com. I thank you for your attention, and I will talk to you next time.